0: Podcast. This episode features a conversation with Ray McGovern and my Peace Studies of the American Century class. It was recorded at the very end of the 2021 school year. We'll be talking about Ray's experiences as a CIA officer from the Kennedy administration to the first George Bush administration, as well as his post-CIA activities as a peace activist.
1: Ray McGovern works with Tell the Word, a publishing arm of the Ecumenical Church of the Savior in inner city Washington. During his 27-year career as a CIA analyst, he led the Soviet foreign policy branch and prepared the president's daily brief for three of the seven presidents under whom he served. He is a member of Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity, goes by the acronym of DIPs, V-I-P-S. And Ray, um, thank you for joining us here. I have to ask you, um, a lot of people did grow some beards over the COVID pandemic time period. Um, What's the story with your your beard?
2: Well, thanks for asking, Aaron. Can you hear me okay? Yes. Okay. Well, um, some of you may remember seeing my good friend, Julian Assange, uh, unceremoniously dragged out of the embassy there in London. Uh, he looked pretty disheveled. <clears throat> um, and I uh, I cast about for some, some way to show solidarity with Julian. And uh, I also didn't want to forget him. You know, best friends forget their best friends. And it's easy enough to forget him since the press doesn't uh, cover anything about Julian here. So I decided on a whim uh, to just let my beard grow. Now that was, he was thrown out of the embassy uh, on April 11th, two years ago. So this is uh, two years plus worth of of what happens when you don't shave. So uh, simply that's what I've been doing and it's a little bit disheveled and unkempt, but I figure, well, you know, that's the least I can do. And when people ask me, then they learn about Julian Assange.
1: Yeah, I uh, that is that to me is touching, and I really worry for him and for his health. It seems like they want they maybe just want him to die. Uh, as far as I can tell, I mean, what do you think of the prospects of his getting released?
2: Well, you know, um, you have to hope, and uh, hope springs eternal. Uh, stranger things have happened. The odds are against it. Uh, they seem to uh, really be set on just moving him from court to court and from uh, from venue to venue forever. Uh, if he catches uh, COVID-19, so much the better uh, for their purposes. Uh, so I, uh, I think we need to keep the pressure on. I think it's uh, an outrage, not only for Julian himself, but for the First Amendment, for God's sake, and for the future of media throughout the world, because what they're doing to Julian, uh, they can do to anyone if they claim the right to, uh, to capture uh, any foreign correspondent or any foreign publisher, whether he or she lives in Antarctica or, uh, or the North Pole
1: yeah they're they are essentially asserting a universal jurisdiction over the whole world by doing this i mean he's an australian national and not even in on u.s territory so it's uh, this is it's pretty amazing and it's also the way it goes uncommented on is pretty astounding as well um so i have uh the, stu- the students are going to ask you some questions about your career because your career and your activism spans A lot of the same time period that we have uh, covered, I guess you weren't around during when this uh, when Truman was around. (laughs) But besides Truman and Eisenhower, you were involved in all these administrations, or at least as a critic. So, um, Sarah, could you ask your question? So my question was, what was it like to work in the CIA under Kennedy? And um, what has been your understanding of his assassination over time?
2: Well, the reason I uh, came down to Washington from my native Bronx uh, was because of John F. Kennedy. Uh, he was uh, inaugurated uh, when I was a senior in college and he asked famously uh, to have us consider what we might do for our country rather than ask what the country would do for us. Uh, it's hard to recapture that spirit. Uh, it was Camelot. Uh, the young family was moving in after a period of, uh, of old guys running the place. Um, and he offered a new vision for world peace, which got him in really deep trouble. Now, I entered uh, CIA in April of 1963. So I only had several months of overlap before they killed uh, John Kennedy. And uh, my understanding is that the... <clears throat> Uh, the best book on this is uh, James Douglas's JFK and the Unspeakable. He uh, devoted a couple of decades to doing the research. It's very good. And he concludes that it was uh, the, what we call the deep state that did him in. Um, The CIA, uh, high level military folks, uh, people and even the secret service and the FBI, who were aghast at the notion that we would have peace, uh, who were aghast at the notion that he would negotiate with communists and actually uh, do things like uh, test ban treaties and things like that. And worst of all, withdraw troops from Vietnam, letting the communists take over all of Southeast Asia and probably Indonesia. Hello, that was the prevailing sentiment among the, hoy aristoy, the, the the people who are running our, our, our foreign policy. And they were from the same elite schools. You're not talking about Harvard and Yale, uh, That the current crop under Biden are from. And I guess the, the assumption is if you go to one of these elite schools, you know something uh, that's been disproven uh, by lots of things. First and foremost, the best and brightest in Vietnam.
1: Yeah, uh, George Bundy got like a perfect score on the Yale interest exam, right? And he's just, all of these guys, they're, they're so smart. Smartest guys in the, in the best country in the world. They couldn't possibly,
2: you know, uh, lead us to disaster. Um, let, me, uh, let me say a word about George Bundy. <laughs> uh, after all this went down and McNamara wrote his book, McNamara being the defense secretary at the time, and said, we were wrong. We were terribly wrong. Uh, McNeil and Lehrer, uh, they had a show, a news program on PBS, and uh, uh, they interviewed McGeorge Bundy and a couple of the high muckety mucks, as my Irish grandmother would call them. The high muckety mucks, they were running the policy. And McGeorge Bundy was uh, very free with what he said. And he said, you know, he said that, the Gulf of Tonkin, uh, which LBJ used to to justify all this killing, August 1964, you know, uh, we had real doubts as to whether there was any incident uh, on the 2nd of August. Uh, we, we were warned that it probably wasn't. And, uh, and yet when LBJ came in and, uh, to my office there the next day and he said, all right, Mac, are you going to, Push that resolution uh, with Congress. And I said, Mr. President, there's some doubt as to whether anything really happened or or whether even we provoked the incident the day before. And uh, and he looked down at me. He's a big guy. He's a big guy. And he said, Mac, are you going to do it or are you not? McNeil asks, well, what happened? He said, well, I did it. Now, I tell that story because it's true, because I watched it and because it told me many, many lessons about guys who get perfect scores on their SATs or whatever it was.
1: Yeah, he later wrote, um, I mean, McNamara's memoir, in retrospect, he he writes, he basically confirms what John Newman and, and Oliver Stone by way of John Newman and Fletcher Prouty we're arguing in JFK that he had pulled, that he was pulling out of Vietnam and McNamara more or less confirms this. And uh, there's a whole chapter in his memoir about this. And then even later, uh, Bundy, he re- he's trying to work on a memoir when he dies with uh, somebody, I think named Arthur Goldstein, if my memory serves. And finally, he sort of, he essentially admitted the same thing to Goldstein before he died, that Kennedy, you know, that, that he's looking at the record now and sees Kennedy was, was getting out of Vietnam. So Bundy at some point comes around a little bit in his life. You know, he's also the guy who wrote that. You said it was a provocation in the Gulf of Tonkin that sort of led to whatever response. And Bundy was also the guy who drafted that uh, in Sam, although Johnson demanded that he change it to, like, make it even more belligerent, as I understand, because I've seen the copies of the draft. So, um, you know, he's a... He's
2: Aaron, let, let me interrupt you and tell you a little vignette from the bowels of the CIA analysis division at the time. I was good friends with, a, uh, with the, uh, the analyst responsible for North Vietnam, there were two countries at the time. And I went down that afternoon and I said, uh, Tom, uh, uh, it looks like there was no incident today. Uh, You you got a a draft going on that? Because we did a uh, daily publication for the high muckety mucks, didn't we? Okay. He said, well, I had a draft, but uh, the head of the analysis division, I won't say his name, uh, came down the first time I ever saw the man, probably the first time he ever came down to the fifth floor. And he said, you're not going to write that. There's nothing gonna be published about the fact that there was no incident. Uh, and Tom said, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, the president has decided that he's going to war and he's gonna use this. So keep that out of the publication. Wow. So what, I said, what did you do, Tom? Well, I kept that out of the publication. Now, it would have been a very gutsy move for Tom to, to spill the beans anyway But suffice it to say that he he reached very high uh, level uh, positions uh, in the Johnson administration and later, and uh, never suffered for having uh, uh, participated in the cover-up, nor did I, because I had a chance to blow the whistle on this too, uh, and didn't even try.
1: Yeah, you'd be sort of committing career suicide, at least, if you did, uh, it would seem, right? I mean,
2: yeah, it's uh, well, uh, let me let me do this limited confession. I had a very good friends. His name was Sam Adams. He was he was a really bright guy. Uh, he was out of Harvard, but he was really bright, too. <laughs> okay, I mean he was sensible. He served in the Navy and he saw what was going on in Vietnam. And when he and I entered the agency on the same day in April, 1963, we went through the career training course together, got to know him really well. He was so bright that he was put on the Vietnam desk when we got fully trained. That would have been in January, 1964. And he realized that no one had done an update on how many enemy, so to speak, how many Vietnamese communists were under arms in South Vietnam. They hadn't done that. Since 1954. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, and they were depending on the French. Okay, so Sam, as was his wont, uh, collected all this information, intercepted communications, uh, POW reports, defective reports, all kinds of um, technical information. And he came up with a figure of 500 to 600,000 Vietnamese communists under arms in South Vietnam. And when he published that, the army said, my God, that's wrong, it can't be that long. They can't be that high. Why? Well, because General Westmoreland and his deputy General Abrams in Vietnam have been saying that there are only 299,000 Vietnamese communists under arms. So it can't be that high. So, Sam, to his credit, went out to Saigon and he did, had it down. He, he had it. He had it out with these people, and he said, "Well, look, now a battalion has two hundred people. What do you say, one hundred? Well, we, a, a company has at least a hundred. What do you say?" And he found out at the bar that night, some drunken. Uh, Analysts working for Westmoreland said, "Now, Mr. Adams, you should go home because uh, because uh, Westmoreland's, Westmoreland's not going to get above 299,000. No matter what you do. Okay, so that was the setting. Now, I am having lunch with Sam Adams in August 1960, 1967. Okay, so about, about eight months before August, eight months or so before the Tet Offensive, in January, February, uh, 1968. So Sam says, uh, Ray, you won't believe this, uh, but we got a cable in from General Abrams, the deputy to Westmoreland uh, this morning. It's no disc, so it's kept very, very, you know, kept up in the director's office. But what it says is this, uh, and I have this memorized by the way, General Abrams, quote, we cannot possibly accept Sam Adams' numbers for enemy strength in South Vietnam because we have project, we have been projecting an image of success in this war, and if those real numbers came out, there's nothing we could do, no matter how many caveats we made uh, that would prevent the media in Saigon from drawing a, a gloomy and erroneous conclusion, period, end quote. Now, Abrams was a great tank commander in World War II, He wasn't real bright in putting something like that on paper where a guy like Adams and a guy like McGovern could read it. So what am I saying here? I regret to this day that I didn't ask Sam to see if he could could Xerox a copy of that cable to me and that I didn't take it down to the New York Times bureau in Washington. Or you have to realize that in those days the New York Times didn't ask the White House for permission before they published something. If it was documentary, they went ahead and published it. So now would that have worked? Would Sam have been able to surreptitiously make a Xerox copy of this cable? I don't know, but I didn't even try. And why didn't I try? Well, I had a mortgage. I had three kids at the time. We have five now. Uh, I had a career uh, and I had a lie detector test every couple of years. And so I said to myself, now, Ray, look, wait until you become, until you become more senior. Uh, wait until you become one of the muckety-mucks, okay? And then when this, this, something like this happens, then you can do the courageous thing. So I blew it. I regret it to this day because, as probably you know, uh, that was August 1967, January, February 1968. You had the Countrywide Tet Offensive. Uh, uh, where every hamlet, town, village, and city was was attacked by the Viet Cong. And there had to have been 600,000 uh, people under arms, not 299,000. Uh, Sam Adams uh, was really irate, but he cooled his temper and he wrote a sar- sardonic cable to Saigon. And he said, wow, it's amazing that the Viet Cong could do all that destruction and death with only 299,000 troops in South Vietnam. So there's a confession, there's an example, and uh, you know a lot of my activism since then is probably conditioned by the fact that I didn't rise to the occasion then. It would have been hard, might not have worked, but I didn't even try. Yeah, and then at best, you'd have to
1: start to study polygraph Techniques so that you could keep your job, perhaps. Uh that would that would give you the benefit of being a, a better liar, which if you got good enough at it, maybe they could move you over to operations, which actually leads to my next question uh from KJ. Um KJ, can you read your question? Uh no problem.
2: Uh in the CIA, was the difference between analysis and operations? Well, let me put it this way. Um, When the CIA was uh, established in 1947, um, the idea was, as Truman put it, to have a group of analysis to give him untreated intelligence. In other words, look, tell it to me like it is. I don't want to hear the State Department treating the information so that it will accord with State Department policy. I don't want the Pentagon to be telling me that the Soviets are 10 feet tall. I know they're not that high. I want you to tell me like it is, and you will have career protection for doing that because you will be under me, not under defense, not under state. Now, that's that's how it was sold to me when I signed up. I said, man, that, that's... <laughs> That's terrific. One place in government where you tell the the truth? Okay, well, that was the original idea. And it persisted for most of my career. But what happened was after World War II, these uh, hotshot operators, now, I don't I don't criticize them. I mean, they did terrific work during the war. In wartime, you need a lot of operators. You need people who jump behind enemy lines. You need people to overthrow government. You need those kinds of people. But they came home and the war was over. And they said, well, um, should we hang around here in Washington or should we go back to our law firms or our corporations or academia? academe? Or what, well, is, do, you ha- do you have a use for us? Now, we're talking... 47, 48, the height of the, you know, anti-communist or, you know, very high tension going on. The Soviets were taking over parts of Eastern Europe and so forth. And so the answer, the, the question answered itself, of course, we need you. Oh, no, the Russians are doing this all over the place. We got to be able to do that, too. OK, now, then the question, the authority question came up. Well, Where do we put these guys and gals? There are a lot of women involved. And the answer was, uh, God, we can't, we can't create a, uh, an agency for for overthrowing governments, or, or even call it, agency for regime change, as we later fashioned. Oh, I know what we do. We'll put it in the CIA because that's a secret organization, and and are you know, we'll protect them that way. And so we'll put the analysts and the operators together, and there'll be one big happy family. Doesn't work. It was a structural fault from the beginning. Very early on, the operations, people took all the, all the action and all the money and, uh, and they colored a lot of the things that we did, for example, in Vietnam. Now, did we, I, I was a Soviet analyst. My degrees are in, in uh, Russian studies, Russian history. And was I able to tell the truth? Yes, I was. Uh, and that's why I stayed in for as long as I did. Uh, I stayed in until 1990 as the Soviet Union started to fall apart. And uh, I decided, well, I can retire now real early and I'll have a penalty. But, but hey, mission accomplished. I patted myself on the back. I said, well, it wasn't only you, Ray, but <laughs> the Soviet Union has fallen. <laughs> Uh, and I had been volunteering down in the University of Washington. That's what I really wanted to do. That's where my heart was, and so I quit. Um, then I watched, well, I didn't watch very carefully for a decade, but then when my former colleagues started manufacturing intelligence to justify a war of aggression against Iraq, Uh, I couldn't abide that. And so a few of my stalwart friends and I got together. We formed Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity and we started publishing the truth. Uh, Not many people listened, but our record is very clear. Uh, Our first memo was on the very day that Colin Powell appeared before the United Nations Security Council and lied, lied through his teeth. Uh, We did a memo that afternoon saying, look, you know, don't believe this stuff. He got an A for performance, a C minus for content, and our final warning to Bush on the thought that he really may not be aware of all these lies. We told him, look, uh, Mr. President, we strongly advise you to widen the circle of your advisors beyond those uh, who, who, who insist that we have a war here because the consequences are likely to be catastrophic, our words. And we take no joy in having been right about that. Uh, We take even less joy in having been dismissed and disregarded and uh, ever since not really having much to do in the councils of government.
0: Yeah, you sent
1: me that um, response from somebody who's in the State Department, I guess, uh, in response to your article in the Biden-Putin summit, right? Um, Which I was only able to look at for a second before I dashed over here. But I saw that he apparently what you were hoping that some sort of cooler heads would be at least a part of the process. And then he informed you that, no, it's not going to happen. Is that is that
2: the gist of it? Yeah, thanks for mentioning it, Aaron. This is something that rarely happens, and it keeps me going. Uh, the fellow's name is Robert Hunter, and he was a very, very high official, I believe under the Clinton, the Bill Clinton administration. Uh, NATO was his, uh, was his his specialty, and he did a lot of very high-level things. Now, you never know who read, who might read your articles. And I did one on anti-war two days ago, uh, right after it was announced there would be a summit between Biden and Putin. And uh, who, who read it but, but Robert Hunter, and he shipped it off to a friend who, des- who he described as being as close as you can get to President Biden. Jill? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know who it was, but he said, look, I shipped your article to this person, and I said, look, you really ought to read this because McGovern's calling your advisors a bunch of sophomores. No uh, no insult to any sophomores.
1: <laughs> These are all upperclassmen, so it's okay. You're in a safe place.
2: Well, they're, you know, it's kind of wet behind the ear, uh, best and brightest uh, sophomores in terms of their experience. Biden's people, his advisors. And so... Uh, he said, look, McGovern's saying this. You, you might want to bring this to the president's attention. And he got back a, a note that says uh, Biden has uh, the best uh, the best group of uh, advisors that any president coming into office has ever had, okay? So yeah, so Hunter sends this on to me and he said, oh my God, you know, I'm, I'm really more fear, fearful for our country's future than ever because this is the response I got. Now, the, the teaching point there is don't give up, McGovern. Don't give up, who knows, you know? Someday somebody important might say, holy, holy Moses, uh, maybe I was take a look at this. And while I'm on that subject about not not giving up, my favorite quote on that is from I.F. Stone. Some of you who might know I.F. Stone, uh, he was a publisher and really he had had guts galore, right? He would be very courageous. So somebody said to him once, you know, uh, don't you get depressed? Nobody listens to you. And so I take inspiration from, from the dismal sounding, uh, but somehow accurate words of I.F. Stone, and I don't want to make this up, and I don't want to mislead you into thinking I'm making it up, this is what he said. The only kinds of fights worth fighting are those that you're going to lose, because somebody has to fight them and lose and lose and, and lose until someday Somebody who believes as you do and tells the truth wins. So the challenge is to realize that, to accept that and, and find the joy in trying, you know, because there is joy in trying. And you don't need people like Bob Hunter to get back to you on this, but it is really helpful when it happens. And it happens to me maybe every other month and that's enough to keep me going. The last thing I'll say on that, because it's a favorite quote of mine, I had a very good friend. His name was Congressman Obi. He was from Wisconsin. He was a terrific guy. Uh, he went to the same church I did for a while in Washington. Now, he was pursuing the Iran-Contra mess, right? Where the president was involved with these guys. Uh, well, it's a very complicated thing. You probably have studied about it. Anyhow, it was all pretty much over. And yet, Obi, who was in charge of a subcommittee having to do with giving arms to places like Iran or Israel, uh, had uh, George Shultz, the Secretary of State, uh, testifying. Now, George Shultz, he was one of the people I briefed. He was a good guy. I mean, comparatively speaking, he was heads and shoulders above the others. But even he was kind of, you know, cynical about all this. And so he starts out by saying, now, Congressman Obi." Uh, the American people are tired of this Iran-Contra stuff. So, so really, why do you keep pursuing it? <clears throat> and Obi looks down at me. and says, <clears throat> uh, "Secretary Schultz, I didn't promise to support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, until I got tired." So, yeah, you know, I take a leaf from that. Uh, I took only one oath. And that is that same oath to support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And when people ask me, why don't I get tired? I say, well, just like Congressman Obi, uh, uh, an oath is an oath and you're not supposed to get tired. As a matter of fact, as far as I know, oaths don't have any expiration date.
1: Yeah, the uh, the constitutional violations of the whole Iran Contra thing are are amazing. They, it was it was it's not even just the Contra. I mean, obviously the name Iran Contra. You have criminality pretty far flung across the globe. You have got that like financial infrastructure of like the enterprise and BCCI, and then you have the drug angle. At the same time, when they when Congress stopped their their one illegal operation to fund them with through weapons sales, then they just let them sell drugs. Was Did you ever have any, were you, the issues with the CIA and drug trafficking and its collaboration with drug traffickers like Gulbanan Hekmatyar and the, the Golden Triangle era in the Vietnam and even before that and, uh, you know, cocaine in the 80s, especially, were was that something that you were aware of when you were at the agency or, or is it something you learned more about in years after you retired?
2: Uh, as you can imagine, Aaron, uh, that, that kind of thing was kept uh, top, top, top secret. Uh, the, uh, The border that divided us analysts from the operations people was very much in place. As a matter of fact, most people don't realize that when I entered the CIA, the new headquarters building, there were turnstiles, turnstiles on each floor, separating the analysis division from the operations. I couldn't go to the operations part they couldn't come to the, to our part uh, without a special thing on their badge and you know so that's how hermetically sealed we were from the operations folks. Now uh, there's some good in that <laughs> as well as bad and we can talk about that later. but uh, what I knew about that kind of thing came only from the New York Times who I would repeat, Uh, actually printed things that weren't uh, pre-approved by the government at the time. That is no longer the case uh, to my great sorrow. Uh, But in those days, we could learn a lot from the New York Times and from reporters like Robert Parry, who taught me something about journalism, who set up uh, consortiumnews.com and who died prematurely three years ago, uh, who published on Iran-Contra um, let me. Let me. Now, I asked Aaron. Uh, you students should know that I've asked Aaron to interrupt me when I run on at the mouth because I'm Irish and I tend to uh, to expatiate. But, but let me uh, let me add this vignette. Bob Perry, Parry, P A R R Y, was the was one of two reporters who uncovered Iran-Contra, who discovered that Ali North was running the operations with Casey, Bill Casey, the head of CIA's blessing. And it was all going down. And, uh, and he reported all this and became quite, quite famous. He w- was working for AP at the time. So famous that he was invited to join Newsweek. Newsweek, wow, he came down to Washington, and a couple of weeks after he we entered on duty, uh, the chief of Newsweek said, "Now, Bob, come on, we're having a big soiree, about 12 people, people come down from corporate in, in New York, it's gonna be big. Uh, so, we wanna come? I said, oh, sure, you know. So around this table were 12 men, all men. There was a representative from Wyoming, was, it His name was Cheney, I think, Dick Cheney, yeah. And sitting across from Bob was Brent Scowcroft, who had just stopped being the National Security Advisor to Ronald Reagan. So, as Bob described it, we're eating our shrimp cocktail, and Scowcroft, apropos of not much, says, "You know, uh, my successor, Admiral Pro- Poindexter, is going to testify before Congress on Tuesday, and uh, uh, if I were, uh, I, I were telling him, I would say, uh, look." Uh, tell them that we didn't tell Ronald Reagan anything about these crimes. (laughs) Bob was not accustomed to etiquette in Washington, so he dropped his fork, shattered his shrimp cocktail holder, looks at Scowcroft and he says, now, General, do you mean to say that you would encourage your successor to perjure himself before Congress? as Bob describes it, about 45 seconds of sheer silence. And then the head of Newsweek put his arm around Bob. and said, now, Bob, uh, look, uh, <laughs> sometimes you have to do what's best for the country. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Gentlemanly, well, manly laughter around the table, all men, of course. Uh, <laughs> and then they went on. Now, why do I tell that story? <laughs> well, there it is. It's spades they know what's best for the country. And if that means lying to Congress, they'll they'll do it. If that means lying to start a war, they'll do it. Now, these are the people that think, really think they know best and that's still the case. And now they have infected the New York Times and almost all of the media, they know what's best. Uh, They know that the Russians are all over the place. The Russians do this, the Russians do that. And it's mostly just made out of out of whole cloth. And let me finish with this. As many of you probably know, we have been exposing the lies about RussiaGate. I should I should first say I hold no brief for Donald Trump. I think he was the very worst president we ever had. But even a even a broken clock, you know, is is right. How many times a day I. I I think too, right? And, and you, give a bro- you give some leeway to the broken clock because you know it's broken, uh, but okay. So was, was Donald Trump right about being spied upon? Yes, demonstrably so. Was he right about being, that they tried to prevent him from becoming president and then when he become president, uh, they tried to sabotage everything? Yeah, that's true, okay. So, uh, this is all documentary evidence that this is true. Of course, you never read it in the New York Times. So, what am I saying here? I'm saying that there's a little vignette that somebody did at the bottom of my article, one of the comments. And he said, You know, Ray, um, you ought to realize that Russia Gators are not, not, never going to give up. As a matter of fact, there's this, there's this story about two Russia Gators that, that died and went to heaven. And uh, they saw St. Peter, and they said, oh, finally, finally, we can get clear on how the Russians hacked. And and they said, St. Peter, would you please ask God, uh, you know, tell us the the, the ins and outs of how the Russians interfered with that election and prevented Hillary from becoming president. So St. Peter looks at him and he says, okay. So he goes five minutes back, five minutes, he comes back and he says, well, Uh, God says that the Russians didn't have anything to do with the 2016 election. These two guys look at each other and say, oh, no, God's in on it, too.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's that. That seems to be about the way that it went. I mean, it was I, I I've never seen anything like that. And they still go on about it today. They've not convicted anyone. The other the other side of it is, why is Trump such a moron? Like, why didn't he depose? Why didn't he have Assange deposed about them on the matter? Like, I, I don't he must be one of the like, most dense humans. I mean, it, that, we've had Warren Harding and we've had some, you know, idiots in the White House. But he's got to be he's next level in terms of just his lack of wherewithal in terms of like dealing with that
2: situation. Well, Aaron, when you say wherewithal, you're absolutely correct. Um, He was up against the deep state, the national security state. They tried to prevent him from becoming president. That's demonstrably true. They tried to sabotage him when he was president. That too is true. And he read the tea leaves and he said, whoops, uh, you know, if I take these guys on, I could end up like John Kennedy. I mean, these guys are powerful. And sure, I have the titular role, I have the uh, the theoretical authority to say, release all those studies that the CIA has done. He tried to do that right before he left office. what did they do? They said, no, we're not gonna do it. So it's a combination of their power relative to a president's feeling of personal security, and a president's feeling about if i try this it's not going to work anyway. Yeah, and that's a blessing because it shows who's in charge and it isn't the president of the United States. Yeah,
1: um i i found recently uh when i did this, this i did this podcast series and did some more research on Kennedy and looked into Nixon and there's actually a conversation of Nixon from 1971 where he goes to Dick Helms' office and he says so uh you know, I'm a little worried this might blow up somewhere down the line. It's it's this whole who shot Jack angle. And uh, I'd really like to know what the agency has on this. And, you know, who was responsible? It, was it Nixon? Was it uh, was, uh, who, was it uh, the communists?
2: Uh, uh, Aaron, who's going into Helms's office now?
1: The president, Richard Nixon. And he, he's saying, I would like anything you have on this whole, he says, this who shot Jack angle, because it might blow up. And when it does, I want to be able to protect you. So, You know, was it the CIA, was the CIA involved? Was it Nixon's fault? Was it, and he lists all these like possibilities and he never does get those files from Richard Helms. But, uh, you know, that this was, even the president can't get these, can't get these these sort of files. And, uh, you know, in Trump's case, he could have at least had Assange deposed or something. I think like in his case, he didn't have to rely on their files. He just could have talked to Assange. I think Assange could have exonerated him. I mean, what, do, you, do you think that's the case or?
2: Well, as you know, the, the Mueller folks refused to interview Assange. They refused to interview Craig Murray, who is the ambassador who said he knew, he knew for a fact that he had met with one of the leakers in Washington. Nobody asked him. So it was, you know, not many people know this, but, you know, that's prima facie evidence that the whole thing was, a, a, was, was concocted. Um, with respect to to what a president can do and what he can't do, <clears throat> you know we were told in, in junior high school that there were three branches of government, right? <laughs> the executive, the judicial and, and Congress. Okay, well, in this case, Congress had passed a law saying that the other documents having to do with the killing of John Kennedy had to be declassified and released. I think it was three years ago. It's about three years ago. Okay. Right. So, um, that's a law. <laughs> now there were some exemptions, you know, that the, you know, there were some loopholes, but there was the law. So somebody tells Trump, it's the law. Trump gets up and he says, I'm going to release later today, all the rest of those uh, documents having to do with the JFK association, uh, assassination uh, in compliance with the law. And, uh, Wow. I'm on tenterhooks. I'm waiting for the announcement. Well, sure the announcement came at three o'clock in the afternoon, uh, Trump. I have changed my mind. Uh, <laughs> CIA and the FBI have told me that they cannot approve release of all the documents. And we're going to revisit this in six months. So, McGovern makes a little note. Yeah. Six months. Six months, Check, yeah. six months what happens? Nobody asks, nobody says, nobody does, nobody does nothing, right? Yep. <laughs> so there you go, How, what more proof do you need? And uh, you know, that's just one little vignette that shows that Trump really wasn't in charge. Uh, and if he tried to, to, well, he did try at the very end. Um, there's one memorandum written by an investigator for the House Intelligence Committee, which shows that the CIA you know, this famous intelligence community assessment, which was said to have been prepared by 17, all 17 intelligence agencies. And then five months, that's what Hillary said. And then five months later, the head of national intelligence said, well, it wasn't all 17. It was like, it was three. It was the CIA, NSA, and FBI. And then later he said, well, actually, it was hand-picked analysts from those three. And then this investigator who's seen the documentation now says, no, it wasn't handpicked. <laughs> it was four or five analysts picked by John Brennan, the head of the CIA. And I've done a memo on that. Trump tried to get that released before he left. And Gina Haspel, the queen of torture, who's head of the CIA at the time, said, no, we're not going to release that. So there you go, folks. Is there a deep state? <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll leave that to you to conclude. Well, speaking of that, what
1: uh, you heard from some people that asked Obama about why he abandoned all of his progressive campaign promises and uh, what, what was that? What was the response?
2: Well, I have to say, tell you that this is not documentary. It's not even firsthand. So I don't really deal in these kinds of things unless uh, the person I know who told me I have complete trust in. So I don't know who the person was that heard this, but I do know that the person who told me and who was told by this other person is incredibly reliable. And what he told me was that uh, when Obama started reneging on on his promises, uh, the promises he made to get elected and uh, uh, and met with a group of progressive uh, fundraisers, and they were, you know, fundraisers can, you know, can be very direct. They would say, well, now what, what about all these premises? Well, you're supposed to be a progressive. What are you doing this? And uh, Obama finally got ticked off and he put his plate down and he stood up and he said, look, uh, uh, don't you remember what happened to Dr. King? Yeah. Uh, again, I can't vouch for that. But it certainly fits in on how Obama sort of uh, reneged on many of those promises, and uh, felt that he couldn't stand up to the army and 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 the others who wanted to reinforce Afghanistan, reinforce Afghanistan, pour more money into into defense, and all those kinds of things. So yeah, it's an interesting vignette. Uh, I think it's probably true, but I can't vouch for it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I wondered what they did to Trump to sort of put the fear of God in him somehow. I think uh, whatever they did, he did he did
2: do a 180 on I, I one eighty on that one. I got a good uh, good suggestion of what they did uh, to Trump uh, on the fifth of January, two thousand seventeen. They got together in Obama and Biden's office, Obama's office, all the high security folks, and they said, "Look, uh, uh, what are we gonna do about this Trump?" And uh, John Brennan said, well, we have this intelligence community assessment which shows that Vladimir Putin himself uh, helped Trump become president by hacking into the DNC emails. We have that. And then uh, James Comey, the head of the FBI, says, and we have this dossier, this dossier, which shows, okay, so what happened? They gave Comey, the commission to brace Trump with this scurrilous dossier, which has Trump cavorting with prostitutes in in Moscow and so forth, completely made out of whole cloth the next day, so what happens? Well, after they brief him on the assessment that says, you owe your election (laughs) to Vladimir Putin, then James Comey, the head of the FBI says, now could you, the rest of you guys, please leave here. I have something very delicate to raise with the president. And he says, "Now, Mr. President, they leave." He said, "Mr. President, I don't know how to tell you this, but but uh, we have this dossier, and, and it says that you were doing some really, really bad things in in my We we can't prove it, uh, but uh, it's out there, and it's likely to be published. And uh, so, just so you know, Mr. President, just so you know. Now that's classic J. Edgar Hoover." tactics. But here's a real estate developer from New York. What does he know about these things? And he says, oh, well, that's that's not true. And then he tries to win Comey over to his side for the next five months before he has to fire him. Okay, But that's the job they did on Trump. We have this dossier, which has been completely debunked and which was used to justify our wiretapping. We have this dossier. So that's what they did to Trump. And uh, it's nothing is is clearer. And who emerges victorious from all this? James Comey, John Brennan, James Clapper, the heads of the deep state. And that's what Joe Biden has to contend with now, whether he knows it or not.
1: Yeah, I I think he's sort of of that milieu. Anyway, he was he's protected the CIA a lot over the years. And, you know, I think that he was the establishment's safe choice. Um, I've got like. Maybe if you could try to answer this in like a few minutes, because I did want to talk to it. And then Aqua has a question that she'll wrap up with. But first, I did want to talk about, since you were initially working on Soviet-Sino relations, um, what, uh, what, how, do you, how does that inform what you see happening today, your experience uh, in the CIA in this area, with the geopolitical changes that we're living through now?
2: Well, it shows that everything changes. Uh, When I was watching Sino-Soviet relations, uh, the big news was that they hated each other, that they were shooting at each other, of course the border, that they had irredenta. The Chinese were claiming uh, a lot of territory in Siberia that had been stolen from them way back in the 17th century. They would hate each other forever, we thought. Ah, not so. Mao Zedong died, more moderate, leadership came in on the Chinese side. And uh, whereas in the 60s and 70s, Kissinger and Nixon were able to play these two major powers off against each other and uh, extract concessions from each, lest they develop a more cordial relationship with Washington, now it's just the opposite. There's this equilateral triangle still uh, with China, Russia, and the United States. But these two sides, (laughs) these two sides are together now and we're facing into a situation where Biden seems to uh, unwittingly be be uh, involved in challenging both uh, at the same time, which is suicide, which is really stupid and uh, which has to stop.
1: Yeah, that was even Brzezinski warned about that he, in his that 1997 Grand Chessboard manifesto where he said that the the worst thing that the U.S. could do is allow the barbarians to come together was the, the term he used, the phrasing he used. And that's basically what they've made happen. I mean, they can forget all their, their gripes with this common enemy that represents really an existential threat to them. I mean, they surround them with military bases and nuclear weapons aimed at them and so it it's just seems clear what's happening. You said that these guys are, uh, you know, Ivy League, but not that clever. I think the poster boy for that now is Blinken. That guy uh, just seems like this Ivy-educated, slick dunce. Uh, but, I mean, I, but, I mean, I guess if he didn't think the things he thinks, he wouldn't be in that position. So it's like the chicken or the egg thing is like, you know. But anyway, I, I, uh, I agree with you about that the the Soviet uh, or the Russian China business and I think that the, the the Nord Stream thing with Germany soon these other countries are going to see that I think that the U S is not their leadership is is kind of their hegemony and their legitimacy is crumbling all the time but um, I guess the last question I want uh, to you to answer is from Aqua and she's going to sort of modify what she was going to initially but I think it'll be a good question so. Aqua, you can go
0: ahead. So my question is,
1: how can we think about these national security institutions and the human beings within them? Um, Because obviously um, the deep state boils down to individuals who are committing these actions.
2: Say that last part again.
1: Um, Because it boils down to like individuals who are committing these actions uh, within the deep state.
2: I'm sorry, I still didn't get. How do, you,
0: how do you reconcile
1: the humanity of the people and some of them who are patriotic and think that they're doing things to help the country? How do you reconcile that with the sort of institutional evil that they're responsible for? Yeah.
2: Uh, how do I do that? Um, with great difficulty. <laughs> uh, you know, when after I retired, I saw some of my former colleagues justifying torture after concocting evidence to justify a war of aggression. I couldn't understand that. And that's part of what motivated me and my, my colleagues to, to start publishing and, and speaking wherever we were welcome. Uh, there is such a thing as evil in the world, you know. I uh, I never held held much brief for demons, <laughs> uh, but what makes people think that they can torture other human beings? That's why, of course, I I threw back my intelligence commendation medal. Um, so it's really hard to reconcile. But uh, there is this groupthink. And uh, uh, if uh, if it suits your career or suits your, uh, you get. Sometimes you don't know what you believe, but it's most very convenient to believe what everybody else does. And so when I watched Gina Haspel, who was in charge of the first waterboarding site in Thailand, uh, be nominated to become the head of the CIA. I watched some of my old friends file in as, as, as though they were approving her. And I said, my God, what happened to these people? What happened to them? Well, it's very insidious. I can't really figure it out, but I'm inclined more to think that demons are really real and that, that only the truth can protect us from them. And indeed, only the truth can set us free. Yeah, isn't that inscribed
1: at the entrance to uh, the CIA headquarters?
2: Yeah, uh, when I first came on board, there it was, right in marble. "You shall know the truth, and the truth shall keep you free." Uh, a, a citation from John's Gospel. And uh, you know, when I saw that, I thought of my Irish grandmother. What she told me about five hundred times is now Raymond, be truthful and honest. And then you won't give a damn what anyone says about you. <laughs> Good advice Yeah, yeah
1: well um, what advice would you give to students who want to be able to stay informed and aware of these really important things that the media and that the educational system tries to keep from us? Uh, what, what advice do you have for, for people who are going to try who are younger than us and are trying to make sense of the world when a lot of the world uh, ch- tries to confuse you and mislead you. And so how do we, how
2: do we keep our heads, uh, you know, where they need to be? Well, thanks for asking. Now, uh, my son, Joseph, who runs my website would say, dad, don't forget to mention your website. It's raymcgovern.com. And my son, Joseph says, well, you know, always add, if you don't get it, you don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, After that, I would say, make sure you read antiwar.com where I publish most now, Uh, consortiumnews.com is still pretty good. Um, There are a couple other things that, uh, Amy Goodman used to be very good and she's still very good on domestic things, uh, but she went haywire on Russiagate and on Syria and on a couple other things and it makes me wonder what's happened uh, but there are lots of uh, progressive sites out there. You just have to kind of uh, be guided as to what you want to to get in terms of pure, unadulterated uh, information, untreated, as, as Truman would say, uh, by uh, agendas uh, here and there. Yeah, I would add uh, the gray zone to that list. I like.
1: Uh, exactly. I think you've been on the gray zone before. Didn't they interview you
2: not too long ago? Yeah, Aaron Mattei interviewed me about uh, Russiagate when the word came out that uh, CrowdStrike, the cyber outfit that looked into the so-called hack by Russia of the DNC emails, turned out to be not true. And the head of CrowdStrike, the horse's mouth, said, we have no technical evidence that anyone hacked the DNC emails, not Russia, not anyone. Whoa. Now, when did that come out? May 7th, last year. Do you see that in the New York Times? No, they must have missed it. So there's a warning. If there's important things that go against the grain uh, of the New York Times, they will, they will check with their uh, people in CIA and say, well, is that okay to publish this? And when, when the answer is no, you'll never see it. Most of my friends who still believe in Russiagate I can't believe me because they believe that the New York times still publishes everything that fits that that's fit to print. Right. Right. Well on
1: that, um, I will, I think at the end of the year, I'm going to try to put together some links for the students to have some websites that I go to and I'll include your, I'll include yours on there. Uh, cause I think that your writing is, is always good and you you stay up to date on all these things. So, um, Thank you so much. This is actually the last class of the year. And it was the other day that Aqua asked me about something about the people who are in the CIA and how do we even think about these people who you know, ultimately come from America, kind of go to the same sort of schools that we go to, and then they end up doing these things. And so I, I listed some of these people like Ralph McGahee, Phil Agee, John Stockdale, Victor Marchetti. And then I was thinking of like other people who have emerged from the catacombs. <laughs> or whatever you want to call it, and uh, you know to to be critical of this institution and to sort of enlighten us. And I remembered, then I thought I thought of you. And so, if I'm so happy that I was able to get in touch with you. And you're uh, you know you spoke with us on such short notice. Uh, this is really a great way for us to to wrap up the year. So uh, thank you very much.
2: Well, I thank you for letting me in your precincts and uh, uh, for letting me know about folks like you that are out there that are now informed in a way that. Uh, we weren't informed as young people. And I wish you success in terms of, uh, well, uh, in terms of telling the truth, in terms of, what is it? Yeah, my, my patron was Dan Berrigan uh, from Vietnam. And Dan used to always say, know where you stand and stand there.
0: Yeah, Ellsberg knew him
2: too, right? He was a good friend, he was a good friends with Dan, right? Yeah, they spent lots of time in jail together. Um, And as a matter of fact, there's one last vignette. If you got one more minute? Yes. Okay. Um, When uh, we decided to give Ed Snowden uh, the Sam Adams Award for Integrity and Intelligence, he was in Moscow. And we had to figure out a way to get there. And we figured it out. We got some help. And right before that, about three weeks before, I was visiting Dan Berrigan at Fordham, uh, in the infirmary there, he was uh, not doing too well health-wise. So I said, uh, Father Dan, um, I have a, uh, I have a request. Um, we are going to see Ed Snowden in Moscow. You know who Ed Snowden is, right? Goes, yeah, of course. Uh, now, what would you tell Ed Snowden? And he looked at me. He had, he really had a kind of a raspy voice at that point, and he says. Uh, Tell him, tell him, tell him he did the right thing. (laughs) And I said, okay, now I was talking to Dan Ellsberg just last week, and I told him I'd be seeing Ed Snowden, and I told him I might be seeing you today. What would you say to Dan Ellsberg? And and Bergen looks at me with a little Irish smile, and he says, Tell him, tell him he did the right thing, too. (laughs) Well... Yeah, that's just very simplistic, right? But think about that. That's all we're asked to do. That's all we're asked to do is do the right thing. Then we're square with our conscience, and then we do a real service for our country. So thanks again for letting me be in your classroom this morning. Uh, Thank you very much, and I think
1: that do the right thing is a good message to wrap up this class and this year with. So, um, Ray, I will be in touch with you. Uh, I I may... um, have another potential interview opportunity with like a a different group that might like to hear from you if you're willing to do it. So this will be down the road, but uh, I'll, I'll get back to you uh, pretty soon. And it was, it's been great talking to you last night and today. And uh, thank you again. You're most welcome. All right.
2: Good luck you guys.
1: Thanks Ray. Bye-bye.
0: Well, that does it for this episode. Kind of wistful listening to my students today. I want to thank Dana Chavaria for engineering this episode, Casey Moore for his fantastic artwork, and Mock Orange for providing our music. As always, keep chasing the light.